Good evening, church. Good evening. What a pleasure to be with you tonight. What an opportunity. What a, what a special opportunity to join with you tonight in sharing from God's Word. When Tim Martin asked me a few weeks ago about speaking on the evening of the 14th, he mentioned that there would be a, a lot of our number who would be gone tonight, who would be in, uh, in Bristol as part of the stateside mission trip, and we certainly commend them for their work in that. But I couldn't help but think to myself, Brother, you are having to look way down at the far end of the bench for your pinch hitter uh, on, the, on the evening of the 14th. But I appreciate uh, the opportunity. Uh, we are we're grateful that such a large number from our group can go on the stateside mission trip. In fact, if you would please, would you join me in standing? And we want to offer a special prayer on behalf of that group and the work that they are doing there this week. Our Father in heaven, what a, what a privilege it is to come to you in prayer at this very moment, just as we did a little while ago. And Lord, we, are, we just uh, humbly bow before you as we continue to offer our worship to you. You deserve the praise and glory that we can give at this time. And Father, you, you amaze us with the ways that you work. We know that you are at work in Bristol uh, at this very moment, as you have been uh, this weekend, as the group from Mount Juliet has been there to, to, um, to participate in that campaign and to lead uh, the effort in, uh, in, in bringing more souls to you in that area. Father, we pray for David as he preaches in the, in the meeting this week. We pray that you will bless the efforts of all the, 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 the members from Mount Juliet who are participating in that, in that special effort. We pray you'll bless them with safety. We pray that you will bless them with the opportunity to, to go through open doors into the lives and hearts of people there who are looking for you. Uh, Father, we just, uh, just lift all of them up to you and pray your blessings over their work. We offer this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. <clears throat> Tonight we're going to look at a, at a snapshot from the photo album of Jeremiah the prophet. Be turning in your Bibles to Jeremiah 36. Jeremiah 36. That can be found on page 703 in the Pew Bible in front of you. Philip had asked me back, uh, back in the spring if I'd be willing to, to teach a lesson that during one evening session of, of summer camp, and I was glad to, to do that as well. And the, the focus that night was uh, a verse from Jeremiah chapter 20, uh, verse 9. And that, uh, that study uh, renewed my interest in the, in the prophet Jeremiah. And so tonight we want to look at this particular unique story from the prophet. There's a lot of biographical information provided throughout the book of Jeremiah, more so than most, most other prophets uh, that we read about in Scripture. And so in just a moment, we want to take a look at, uh, at what, uh, what the prophet Jeremiah uh, did in a particular situation when God called upon him. But as you're, uh, as you're there at, at Jeremiah chapter 36, let me also ask you, if you happen to see back in April the results of a study conducted by the American Bible Society. It was their annual State of the Bible survey conducted by the Barna Group. The report details Americans' beliefs about the Bible, its role in society, and its presence in, in U.S. homes. As in previous years, the, uh, the study or the survey found that the Bible remains a highly valued, influential force in America. But Beliefs about the Bible and its role in society are becoming increasingly polarized, particularly
particularly when the data is examined by age group. The research also uncovered a significant disconnect with, or between belief and behavior. While 66% of those surveyed agreed that the Bible contains everything a person needs to know to live a meaningful life, 58% said they do not personally want wisdom and advice from the Bible. And about the same amount, 57% read it fewer than five times a year. The study also revealed that one in six people reported buying a copy of the Bible in the last year. 80% of Americans identify the Bible as sacred. Americans have plenty of copies at their fingertips, an average of 4.4 Bibles per household. And 56% of adults believe the Bible should have a greater role in U.S. society. One very interesting point that was made in this particular survey was that more than half, 57% of those ages 18 to 28, report reading the Bible less than three times a year or never. Ages 18 to 28. But the actual Bible reading and perceptions about the Bible have, have become increasingly polarized with about six million new Bible antagonists in the last year. I'm not sure how they measured that, but that is quite a significant figure. Six million new Bible antagonists in the last year. We don't have to go very far to know that there are people in this country and right here in our own community as well who despise God and His Word and the people who choose to follow Him. But of course, that is nothing new to God Himself. There have been various incidents throughout history when God's Word was disregarded or, or, or discredited. But God's Word always survives. God's Word survives because God's Word is powerful. And God's Word is powerful because it is true. And that truth has the capacity to transform our lives. Unfortunately, not everyone is willing to listen to the life-changing words of God. And one of the most graphic attempts to devalue the words of God is found in Jeremiah 36. Let's begin reading in verse 1. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Take a scroll and write on it all the words I have spoken to you concerning Israel, Judah, and all the other nations from the time I began speaking to you in the reign of Josiah till now. Perhaps when the people of Judah hear about every disaster I plan to inflict on them, each of them will turn from his wicked way. Then I will forgive their wickedness and their sin. God calls on Jeremiah to write, to, or to get a scroll, so that the, the messages that God has been giving Jeremiah over the course of several years can be, can be written. We don't know exactly the content of what those writings were. We don't know exactly what was put into that, into that scroll, but we've got an idea that it was probably something 
some of the, the content that we now know as chapters 1 through 25 of Jeremiah. Because though many of those teachings were from the, the period that, that preceded this incident that we're, that we're describing right now. Very quickly, I just want to give you a quick glimpse into what some of those teachings uh, were, were and what, what the content of the scroll may, uh, may have been. Look at uh, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 19. Jeremiah 2, verse 19. God speaking through Jeremiah says, Your own wickedness will correct you, and your backslidings will rebuke you. Know therefore and see that it is an evil and bitter thing that you have forsaken the Lord your God, and the fear of me is not in you, says the Lord God of hosts. God is making it very clear that He is, point, he is, he is keeping the people accountable for their actions. He says, you all have turned to wicked ways. You, you are backsliding. You're no longer following me and, and the commands that I've given to you. They have forsaken the Lord their God. And that is a common theme throughout Jeremiah. He's pointing out that they have forsaken God. They have left the ways of God and pursued their own interests. Look at chapter 6, verse 15. Chapter 6, verse 15. Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? Again, this is God speaking, speaking to the people through Jeremiah. No, they were not at all ashamed, nor did they know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time I punish them, they shall be cast down, says the Lord. He's making it very clear that they, that the the, the abominations in which they were involved, the evil practices of the people had, been, had become so common that they were no longer ashamed of them. In fact, they no longer knew how to blush at the evil they were practicing. And God makes it very clear that because of that, He intends to punish them. And God continues that thought. Look at chapter 10, beginning with verse 17. Gather up your belongings to leave the land, you who live under siege. For this is what the Lord says, At this time I will hurl out those who live in this land. I will bring distress on them so that they may be captured. In verse 22, Listen, the report is coming. A great commotion from the land of the north. It will make the towns of Judah desolate, a haunt of jackals. You see, God is making it known what He plans to do. He lets them know up front that they're, they better start packing because they're going to have to leave the land. The land is going to be under siege. He's going to cast them out. He's going to bring distress upon them. They're going to be captured. The towns of Judah will become desolate. The messages that God is sending through the prophet Jeremiah basically are that your evil has become so bad that I have no other choice but to destroy you and punish you unless you repent. Jeremiah conveys that message over and over again. And Jeremiah was not liked. I shared this with, uh, with our campers. Jeremiah was not a popular man at all. He was the type of person, if he was walking down one side of the, uh, of the street, uh, people would go to the other side to avoid him. He was not invited to... Uh, 
to any type of social gatherings. Nobody wanted to be around Jeremiah because he, he didn't have a very good message to, to, uh, to deliver. The people didn't want to hear what he had to say. So in this particular year, the God calls upon Jeremiah to write a, uh, on a scroll, to prepare a scroll that will contain many of these types of teachings. And God, God knows that the, the people have another chance. He's giving them another chance to repent and to turn from their evil ways. So Jeremiah recruits a scribe named Baruch. And Baruch writes the, begins writing the scroll as, as a Jeremiah dictates the words to him. We're not told how long it takes. We can probably imagine that it probably takes the course of several months for them to, to write all of this down, considering Baruch was having to do it, one, one letter, one word at, at a time. But they know that there's going to come a day when the, it'll be the perfect time, the perfect opportunity for these teachings to be read to, uh, to the people of Jerusalem. And it's well over a year later when this day comes. It's the fifth, uh, the, 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 this is occurring, this first occurs in, uh, in 605 B.C., the fourth year of, of the reign of King Jehoiakim. In the fifth year, the ninth month, a day of fasting is called probably called by the king. And this is the type of day of fasting in which it's not a, it's not a normal day of fasting. It is, it is occurring because there's some type of national emergency. Again, we're not told exactly what that is, but all the people in Judah have come to Jerusalem for this day of fasting. So the timing is right for the, for the scroll to be read. Jeremiah so disliked that he knows he can't be the one to go to the temple to do it. In fact, it's possible that he's been banned from the temple by this point. So he instructs Baruch to take the scroll and to go to the temple. And Baruch goes to a chamber overlooking the, uh, the temple court. He's up in a high chamber, probably in a window, an opening in that, in that chamber overlooking the, uh, the, the crowd. The people have gathered... And he uses that occasion to read from this scroll, again, all these teachings that have been compiled through Jeremiah. We're not told what the, or how, the, how the crowd reacts, but we are told about the response of one individual, Micaiah. Micaiah is the son of Gemariah, and Gemariah is one of the king's officials. So upon hearing... The, the, the words from the scroll as, as, as Baruch reads them from the, from the upper chamber, Micaiah goes to where his father and the other king's officials are gathered. And he reports to them what he's heard. He reports that out of concern because he realizes that these words are serious. That there is something powerful here behind these words. We believe that, that Gemariah and some of the other king's officials were actually sympathetic towards Jeremiah. They were supportive of Jeremiah. And so when they hear that these are the words from Jeremiah the prophet, they send Jehudai to go get Baruch to bring him to their meeting place so that they can hear the words for themselves. 
So Baruch sits among the king's officials and again reads from the scroll. Look at the response in verse 16 of the officials as they hear these words. Baruch read the, the words to them, and when they heard all these words, they looked at each other in fear and said to Baruch, we must report all these words to the king. Their hearts were touched by what was communicated through the messages in the scroll. And they realized the king needs to hear this. But they also know that the king doesn't like Jeremiah. So they tell Baruch to go find Jeremiah and to go into hiding. In the meantime, they take the scroll, they hide it until they approach the king. The king is open to hearing these words, apparently, because they sent, then send Jehudai to get the scroll and to bring it into the king's chamber. Remember, it's the, the, the ninth month of the fifth year of Jehoiakim's reign. Based on the calendar at that time, they would put it in December. So the weather's cool, perhaps cold. And in the king's chamber, there's a, there's a fire going to help keep him and his servants warm. Let's pick up reading in verse 22. It was the ninth month and the king was sitting in the winter apartment with a fire burning in the fire pot in front of him. Whenever Jehudai had read three or four columns of the scroll, the king cut them off with a scribe's knife and threw them into the fire pot until the entire scroll was burned in the fire. Can you imagine being in that room? Can you imagine watching the king of Judah respond that way to words from God, from the God of heaven? The very words that were able to save Jehoiakim and his family and the people of Judah were the words that he burned. After a few paragraphs were read, he just took a, a knife, sliced the scroll, and threw the piece into the fire. Can you imagine and can you believe the arrogance of this man? His actions were, were deliberate and defiant. That's how the king, the king of Judah, responded to the words of God. But the king, interestingly, was not... His, his reaction was opposite of that of his officials. Look at verse 24. The king and all his attendants who heard all these words showed no fear, nor did they tear their clothes. The tearing of their clothes would have been a, a symbol of repentance. The officials had previously responded with fear when they heard the words. And now the king responds with no fear. So what happens? What happens to someone who disregards the word of God? Look at verses 30 and 31. Jeremiah, or God tells Jeremiah 
to share these words with King Jehoiakim, probably at a little bit later time after the actual burning of the scroll. Verse 30, Therefore this is what the Lord says about Jehoiakim, king of Judah. He will have no one to sit on the throne of David. His body will be thrown out and exposed to the heat by day and the frost by night. I will punish him and his children and his attendants for their wickedness. I will bring on them and those living in Jerusalem and the people of Judah every disaster I pronounced against them because they have not listened. So what happens to someone who disregards the Word of God? In this case, King Jehoiakim was killed. Happened a few years later, but it, it happened as God predicted it would. And Judah was taken captive by Babylon, just as God had predicted would happen. Interestingly, the, 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 the Hebrew word used in, in verse 31 that we just read about, about God throwing out or casting out Jehoiakim. Verse 30, actually. His body will be thrown out and exposed to the heat by day and the frost by night. That same Hebrew word for cast out is the same word that was used to describe what the king was doing in casting out the scroll into the fire. He had cast the scroll into the fire. God chose to cast him out and, and take his life. So God tells Jeremiah to take another scroll. He tells him to go ahead and rewrite everything that, they, that, they had already, that he and Baruch had already done. So he, re, he gets with Baruch again. And they, they write again all these messages from God. And the second time around, they're actually able to add some additional messages from God. But that scroll was probably the initial document from which our present book of Jeremiah evolved. So what do we learn? What do we learn from, from this text? First of all, we learn that God's Word is indestructible. Attempts to destroy the Bible have always been a part of this remarkable book's history. In 303 AD, for instance, the Roman Emperor Diocletian issued an edict to destroy all Christians and their Bibles. The persecution that followed as a result of this edict was one of the most brutal in Roman history. And towards its end, Diocletian ordered a monument to be erected, and on it had these triumphant words inscribed, the name Christian is extinguished. Twenty-five years later, however, Diocletian was dead, and his successor, Constantine, had legalized Christianity and had ordered Bibles prepared at government expense. In 1776, Voltaire, the French philosopher, announced that 100 years from now, from this day, there will, be, there will not be a Bible on earth except one that is looked upon by an antiquarian curiosity seeker. Yet, 100 years later, 
his very own house. And press were being used to print and store Bibles by the Geneva Bible Society. Ironically enough, at a public auction held 100 years to the day of Voltaire's prediction, the first edition of his work sold for 11 cents. But a Bible manuscript was purchased for over half a million dollars. Modern times are no different. In spite of fierce attacks by secular philosophies and totalitarian governments, more Bibles have been printed in more languages than any other book year after year. God's Word is indestructible. And His own Word verifies that. Psalm 119, verse 89, Your Word, Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Peter writes to the early Christians and quotes from the prophet Isaiah in 1 Peter 1, 24 and 25. All people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And Jesus himself says, Matthew 24, verse 35, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Man's attempts to destroy his word are no match for the Creator of heaven and earth. So not only is God's word indestructible, but God's word, our second lesson to be learned, is that God's word is to be feared. We noted earlier the reaction of the officials. They feared that they responded with fear when they heard the message from the scroll. They had an attitude of concern. They respected the words of God. They were reverent to wh towards what was written there. We noted, too, the reaction of the king. No fear. An attitude of irreverence, disrespect, defiance, cynicism, spite. The officials knew that responding to the words in the scroll would lead to the salvation of the country, not its destruction. The king, on the other hand, didn't believe the words of the Lord as written in that scroll. And it cost him his life. Those who have a healthy fear of God's Word understand the value of listening to and obeying the words that can save. The reason for the Bible's success is simple. The Bible is true. And the truth has the capacity to change lives and to transform people. May the sentiments of the psalmist be our sentiments as well. We read in Psalm 119, beginning with verse 33. Psalm 119, verse 33. Teach me, O Lord, to follow your decrees. Then I will keep them to the end. Give me understanding and I will keep your law and obey it with all my heart. Direct me in the path of your commands, for there I find delight. Turn my heart toward your statutes and not toward selfish gain. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Preserve my life according to your word. Fulfill your promise to your servant so that you may be feared. Take away the disgrace I dread, for your laws are good. For I long, how I long for your precepts, Preserve my life in your righteousness.
Not only is God's Word indestructible, not only is God's Word to be feared, but another lesson that we learn from this text is that God is merciful. Look back at verse 3 in Jeremiah 36. Verse 3. Remember God, when He asked Jeremiah to prepare the scroll, gives this as His reason for doing so. Perhaps when the people of Judah hear about every disaster I plan to inflict on them, they will each turn from their wicked ways. Then I will forgive their wickedness and their sin. The motivation behind preparing the scroll was to give the people of Judah and the king in particular one more chance to repent. God's mercy is at the heart of this account. God's mercy can be seen over and over throughout Scripture. Deuteronomy 4 verse 31, For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not abandon or destroy you or forget the covenant with your ancestors which He confirmed to them by oath. Paul writes to the Romans chapter 9 verses 14 through 16, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. A few pages later, in the same letter to the Romans, chapter 12, verse 1, Paul writes, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And Paul writes to the Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Mercy is one of God's best attributes. God is willing to withhold punishment from those who deserve to be punished as long as they are willing to repent and turn back to Him. God may be extending His mercy to you tonight. He may be giving you another chance to obey Him. He may be giving you one more chance to repent, to turn towards Him, and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Through His mercy, He may be offering you the opportunity to be transformed by the power of His Word. If you desire to respond to God's mercy tonight, if you need the prayers of this church family, then we invite you to 